10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Live from Swansea, this is The Twilight Show with Nathan Ginn. Hello and welcome to Swansea, the Twilight Show with Nathan Ginn on Teachers Talk Radio. And tonight we're talking about the play cycle. We've got Dr. Pete King from Swansea University. And we're going to be asking, are we getting in the way of play? What is play? The main stages of the play cycle, the adults' role in play, and why is play important? Tune in, talk it out, off we go. Live from Swansea, this is The Twilight Show with Nathan Ginn on Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live at ttradio.org or to join in the conversation, download the Podbean app and search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag TT Radio. Tune in, talk it out with Teachers Talk Radio. Welcome to the Swansea and the Twilight Show with me, Nathan Ginn. Now, as I said, we're going to be joined by Dr. Pete King. I think we've got him in the studio, so I'm just going to check in. Um, are you there? Yeah, evening, evening. Oh, good evening. Yeah, I, I, you know, I should apologise again. I, you know, last week I had uh, someone from South Wales on the show, and I had to go through the the, the rigmarole of explaining that. Yeah, it's you know, it's it's not uh, good morning here, as as uh, non Welsh speakers might not have realised that I say introduction, but it's the most common, like uh, recognised one that we do. Um, so welcome, Dr. Pete King. As I say, from Swansea University, um, we're talking about the play cycle tonight. But uh, first of all, why don't we get to know you a little bit, if that's all right? And, uh, you know, tell us a little bit about yourself, what you currently do and, and, and how you got into it. Right. OK, well, first of all, thank you very much for uh, allowing me to uh, have a chinwag with you. I uh, generally appreciate it. Um, as you sort of um, said yeah i'm uh, a senior lecturer at uh, swansea university um and uh, my main uh, sort of role is uh, i teach play um and i sort of teach play across both undergraduate and postgraduate um courses um and i actually am the the program director for our master's course in um, developmental and therapeutic play and very much we focus on the process of play and hence my um, particular interest in, in the play cycle. Um, a bit of my background, Nathan, is that um, a lot of us who um, got into play do it by accident. So we don't sort of wake up one morning and think, oh, it'd be good to uh, have a career in children's play. Um, I I think, oh, blimey, we're talking about 1995. I, I actually was doing um, my PGCE um, in uh, uh, London and because uh, my, my, my degree is actually in botany. Oh, wow. Okay. And, and um, I was uh, on my placements and I could always remember it was one of these you know yourself two o'clock on a friday afternoon and uh, you've got the uh, not the highest level of um, students because they're placed in sort of categories of one two three four five and six and i think i was on about four 
And I was trying to sort of, and I use the word trying, um, to explain the um, sexual reproduction parts of the flower. Yeah. And I remember looking at the students thinking, you don't want to be here and I don't want to be here. And I think that's actually quite an important thing because if you're going to go into something, I'm saying particularly teaching, I, I generally have a lot of admiration for teachers because it's not a nine to three job. We know that. And when you've been the other side of it, you can see that it's not that. But um, I don't give up. So I made sure that I got the qualification. So I am technically a qualified secondary school teacher in science. I've still got my old DFE number somewhere. I can't remember what it is, <laughs> but I never used it. Yeah. Um, but at the time, um, I was actually, my, my course was in London, but I was living in Oxford. And um, uh, one of my relatives was running an after school club. And it was one of these after school clubs that is not connected to the curriculum. So it's where parents who can't pick their children up at three o'clock or because they're working or might be yeah. at college or something. And so um, they said, look, we need somebody just to um, cover the last summer term. So I said, yeah, OK, because I wasn't in work. I did apply for a few teaching jobs, but uh, I, th I think they could see the whites in my eyes that I didn't want the <laughs> job as well. And um, I sort of thought, well, this is all right. But, you know, it, 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 again, not considering it to be a career. Um, and then uh, a school round the corner was setting up their own after school club. And so I was encouraged to apply and I got the job. And then that, that was sort of working three to 5.36. But in the mornings, I actually got a job in a group. So I was actually working with children in a playgroup setting, two to four year olds, and then an after school club in, in uh, Oxford, they have a middle school system. So it was um, four to nine year olds. Hmm. And what I didn't realize was that I was entering in this field and this world called playwork. And playwork um, originated sort of from the 1950s, 60s, eventually playground movement that's where the sort of this one of its histories and philosophies is based and so I ran this after school club then I um, got a job just outside uh, Reading in Wokingham and it was running what was called a demonstration after school club project and the idea was I'd set up two after school clubs which then allowed schools who might want to have an after school club can see how it would run. And it was actually a, a DFEE, as it was called then, funded project. And so I was suddenly entering in the world of play more and more. I had a full time job with it now. And then I moved on and I was the play officer for Cheltenham Borough Council, running their holiday play schemes in uh, Easter and summer, and that was running up to about 10 sites at a time. So it was being responsible for a huge number of people. But during this time, I was sort of realizing that my thinking was changing and I was looking at why children play, how they play, what's this interaction. Um, so I then did a, uh, a master's 
by distance learning with um, Leeds Metropolitan University and um, now called Leeds Beckett. And my, it was a master's by research. So it was all looking at uh, children's control and choice in play. And uh, that developed into a PhD, which I actually did at Swansea. I, I, I did that 2008. And at the same time, this developmental therapeutic play course was set up. So I was teaching on that at the same time. And then when I was writing up, I had um, uh, about 18 months where I was actually running a play project where I'm based in West Wales in Pembrokeshire with a colleague who uh, was running this a similar project in, in Carmarthenshire. And it was what was called an open access play project. And basically I had a van four play workers and the van was just full of equipment from sports equipment arts and craft to junk modeling from the size of buttons to cardboard tubes that were three times the length of children and basically we would go in the park we'd get all the stuff out and it was just encouraging children to come and play back in their community so whilst i was writing up my phd on play and my PhD was looking at children's perception of choice um, and control. I was also still running and face-to-face -face working at times as well. Um, and then as I completed that, I then became a full-time lecturer at Swansea. I know it's a bit of a long answer, but it gives a sort of aspect of your play practice, you dip in and out of it, and, but it always keeps your, your mind thinking about play. Now, what really interests me about sort of some of that is, you know, uh, I'll just try it down next to myself here, like the, the age group things. Cause so, you know, there was the initial part where you, you, you were, you know, you trained as a secondary school and then playwork uh, tends to, we tend to think of it as being younger. Yeah, sort of down there. And now you're, you're back up being a lecturer working with adults. How do you find that transition between different age groups? I, I always find it interesting with people who move between. Right, because I think that there's two concepts here, Nathan. One, when you just think about play, play as an, uh, something that you might observe or you, 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 you might want to see or you, you interpret it. Then you've got playfulness. And playfulness is about a mindset. It's how you approach something. And I think it's that playfulness that enables you to move from one context to another. So, for example, when I, when I was um, on one of my placements, I was in a school and they said, um, don't worry about developing any resources. Now, I'm, I'm talking about the 90s years, so we didn't have things like the Internet. OK, so basically I had a, I had one of these manual typewriters that you punch the keys and that's the resource that I was making resources because they just said, oh, photocopy the resource that you've got with this book. And I thought, no, because if I want to be involved with something, then I've got to be involved with it. I just don't want to be a sheep photocopying something and doing what somebody might have done a year before. Mm. So I used to make the activities quite playful because I always felt that you actually could get the children's attention if there's something playful for them to see. And, and particularly with playfulness, having that element of surprise and not knowing why and what they're doing. You can actually do the same process with adults in higher education, and I do, particularly when I teach research. Research is a very dry subject, but if you introduce playfulness into it, 
you can actually make that subject more interesting not for everyone not everyone likes playful approach to teaching and learning and you've got to accept that and you've got to have that balance between playful and non-playful but on the whole that playful approach enables you to be in a play group at nine o'clock be in an after school club with four to nine year olds or teach in a lab with secondary school or in a lecture theatre with the most diverse age range, ability range and, and, and cultural range you get. But that concept of playfulness is the thread. Oh, okay. No, I like that. You know, that, that makes a lot of sense to me about, you know, how you're kind of transitioning between them. Now, I should say, if there is anyone listening in live, which there is, I don't know why I said it in that way, but if you're listening in live, um, what you can do is you can text in questions if you're listening live in the Podbean app. Um, you can tweet us at TT Radio Official, um, and we'll be able to read those questions. If you have thoughts, if you have questions you want to share them, you can even, if you're feeling brave enough, call in and, and ask us a question live on air of course as well now i wanted to sort of fire away and you have to apologize i have kind of prepped these questions and i, I am thinking from an audience point of view here so some of these you know you might feel uh, are possibly silly questions maybe i'm showing my my ignorance you know so i do apologize uh, but we'll be quick kind of through this first bit um just kind of so people uh, you know we, we kind of set the scenes um so when we talk about play tonight, when we talk about playing, what do we mean? Four. <laughs> or is that not? Is that too big a question? No, no, it, it, it's not. Well, it is. It's a huge philosophical question, which um, we're going to attempt to um, unpack in huge details. Because the one thing about play is that the more you look into it, the more you think I don't know what it's about, which seems like a bit of a sort of cop out answer, but it's not because it's like the, the you know, unpacking something, more things emerge. And then you wonder why have these things emerged? And this is why when you look back in over history, you know, um, the early um, play theorists, what we term the classical theorists, the um, late 1800s, early 19th century, uh, 20th century, um, they very much looked at play from a biological perspective. That um, there's this one chap called Carl Gruss who believed that play is a practice of skills. And he uses the analogy that um, animals play. So if you have a kitten, and you give them a ball of wool, what does the kitten do? And it kind of like knocks it back and forth, doesn't it? It kind of like pushes it to you, you, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. So what, why, why would a cat need to develop skills like that? I, I, I don't know. I, I always, is it not like, uh, like catching a mouse or something? Is it Precisely. Like a life skill? What does a cat do when it catches a mouse when it's older? It does exactly the same thing uh, that it's done yeah. with the ball of wool. So that's why Carl Gruss believed that um, play was a practice of skills. And I think there is a, a strong element with that. I think that the more you allow children to play, the more potential skills. And the, the more recent sort of research with that is, is, is about, um, you know, the neuro development, the synapses, because the brain has this wonderful capacity of saying, use it or lose it. So if the brain's not being stimulated, it's not going to make these neural connections. 
and play enables those neuro connections to be made. So this is why having a rich environment where children can manipulate, shape, destroy, create, is creating those neuro connections. Because the other beauty thing that we have as, as, as a species is that when we create something, it changes our thinking. And then it makes us change what we want to make. And that's why we live in such a complex world. As opposed to if you look at you know other animals, you know, for example, a beaver, it will make it set and then it's happy. It's got its house. Whereas we have a house, but we're always fiddling with it, aren't we? We get the drill out because we want to put a shelf or something. We're, we're always modifying and changing the environment. And play enables children to do that. Um, you've also got the... Um, aspect of of play being very therapeutic right. and that children um the reason why they play is that it's this thing about pain and pleasure and conflict and being able to play things out to gain an understanding of what they've experienced or or, or trying to get an understanding and um it, it it's that element and this is not deliberate here but here's your segue it's that therapeutic aspect that actually initially underpinned the first putting forward of the play cycle okay. because the play cycle um is is a concept that was first um brought together by two people gordon sturrock and um professor perry else but it was a it was a conference paper so it wasn't a research paper. It was a paper that they put together. Um, every three years, the International Play Association have a conference. Mm. And in 1998, it was in Colorado in America. Um, I, I got into play work in 1996. So I didn't know Perry. I didn't know Gordon. And I didn't know about the play cycle because I was just getting myself sort of my first after school club and everything else. Yeah. And um, they presented this paper and the basis of it is that the play space from their perspective is the natural healing space. So if you deprive children of play in the play space, you're depriving them of that natural space that they can play out. They can try out things. They can challenge things. They can um, determine aspects of risk. All these things that we need to have in life and we still need to have as adults. So again, that can link a little bit back down to Cole Groose about, you know, having those skills, your practice that you still have to put in place as adults. Yeah. And, and, and um, what was interesting about um, the play cycle that, 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 that they um, had, it, it was this paper, uh, um, I say the, the, the play space, natural space. It, it, it's, it's referred to as the Colorado paper because of Colorado in America where the IPA is. Um, interestingly, just as a, a, a by the, the 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 next IPA conference um, is this June, and it's in Glasgow. Okay, and so we could have the Glasgow paper. No, because they're not with us anymore. <laughs> oh, I, but 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 it's actually twenty five years. Okay, since they introduced that paper, so. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm actually um, going to be delivering at, at the conference, so I'm actually going to do a bit of a review of it 
So in, in one way, it won't be a, a Glasgow paper, but we're revisiting aspects with it, particularly with the research that I've done with, with my colleague, Dr. Shelley Newstead. Hmm. Um, so they sort of looked at play. Now, a lot of the times, and again, going back to you, your question about the context, you often think of play because it meets a particular outcome, and it might do. We can't categorically say there's a cause and effect. There's too many variables in the world to say that it's actually play that does this. But there's a strong correlation, strong relationship. And this is where I do actually have a lot of empathy with teachers, particularly uh, in the early years and in the early stages of the, the um, foundation stage, and in England, the early years foundation stage, the foundation phase in Wales, isn't it? Is that play is often used because it wants to meet a specific outcome. Mm. Now, I always say to my students, I have no issue how people are going to use play, adults per se, but be honest how you're using play. Don't dress it up as one thing and pretend it's something else. So, for example, play therapy uses play to meet a particular outcome because they might be working with a child or group of children and they want to get them from A to B, but hopefully through the process, the children are working this out itself. So going back to this sort of therapeutic aspect. Same with, with um, the um, looking at uh, play to meet certain attainments or, or outcomes. You might up that because you want to see if children are developing the fine motor skills. Hmm. Again, no issue with that. The key thing here, though, and this goes back down to this aspect of playfulness and goes back down to the mindset and the approach that you have, the disposition that you have, is that what we think is play as an adult, children might not think it's play. And often, if children haven't got the control or autonomy, the aspect of play or their perception of play decreases. The more they see the adult in control, not all children, sometimes some children like playing with adults. That, that you know, it, it, it's not a, a catch-all statement, but more often than not, children like to have the control and the autonomy of the space and, and the resources, and they will determine that that's play more than if they set a task that might be playful, it might be approach that looks at play, but they might not perceive it as play. What the play cycle um, focused on was the process. It wasn't worried about outcomes of play. It was saying, right, play may have a process. And if we focus more on the process and as adults, we support that process, then potentially there can be more outcomes than if you just try and focus play to a specific outcome. The, the simple analogy I always give is, is that if I've run out of coffee and I like a certain brand of coffee, and I go to the supermarket, I go straight to the shelf, and if it's not there, I'm disappointed, and I leave, and I've got nothing. So if you're focusing play on one particular thing and it doesn't happen, well, what do you do? Do you just keep doing that till you see it? Or instead of just sort of thinking, right, I, wanna, I, I like this particular brand of coffee, but I'm going to have a wander around of the supermarket. And actually, I see other things that I thought, oh, I didn't think of that. I'll have that. And then I might see a different brand. Got my, And that's the thing about the process. The process can potentially 
lead to unexpected outcomes. Hmm. And allowing children to have that control and autonomy might not get to the adult outcome. It might actually get to a child outcome that we hadn't considered and hadn't thought of. And that's sort of the process of play. And that's what we focus on in Swansea with, with, with the courses that I do, is, is that we focus on supporting non-directive play practice. Okay, so I, I'm going to ask my next question. I don't want this to be like in any way, you know, I should say, uh, you know, I, I, you know, I have uh, spent my time, I, I worked in a, a, as a play worker up on May Hill, you know, I, 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 but play then is natural and all animals do it. And, you know, and we do it and we've talked about cats doing it and, and young children want to do it. So it's a natural thing. So is it an easy thing then? Um, you can make play as easy and as complicated as you like. So it does depends. it like, if I was to, you know, if I was to not do anything, would I get good play or is it, you know, and, and that's the bit I think, and I know we're going to talk through the play cycle in a bit like in real detail and go through the interest me, this, this kind of the, the adult part that you've talked about then. So, you know, does it just come out? I think is what I'm asking, you know, we yeah, I, I think that the, the belief, particularly within um, the, the, the underpinning theory of, of, of um, the play cycle, is that play is a drive, right. a bit like sex is a drive. Right. And so it's going to happen. Right. Um, you t there's a chap uh, called Gordon Burkhart, and he's an animal behaviourist. And I went to um, one of his... Uh, presentations at a conference um, a few years ago and he shows this lovely video of fish playing oh, okay and whether you buy into it or not he's very convincing yeah. but it's this thing about that actually um there are certain things that stop play and they tend to be things that are stress related Right. So when animal is fed, loved, warmth, shelter, it's what he terms a relaxed field. So that there are less stresses, and then when you've got the less stress, that's when animals play. And if you think, actually, that's the same with children, that the less stressed they are, the more chance they're going to engage in play. And often society puts those constraints on that reduces the relaxed field. Okay. Uh, we get just a little bit of crackle there, I think, on your microphone. I don't know if it's if it's rubbing on, on, on something as you talk or but yeah, there's just a little bit of crackle there. Um, right. now, how's that? Do you know when it goes? So I don't know if you're dancing around as you speak to us, maybe. No, I, I'm not. I'm sat down. But I, I, what I would say is I'm in West Wales and our internet is still the basic. So uh, <laughs> you're just going to have to bear with me. Yeah, no. It, do you know what? It very much could be. Sometimes the rain will make mine stop. Who knows? Yeah. Um, right. Okay. So we've talked a little bit about the, you know, natural, the, these things, fish are playing. Now, the other bit I wanted to ask you and kind of get out of the way before we really dive into kind of the stages of the play cycle was about this kind of it, whether it's a child thing you know is it is it like peter pan and then you know you you, you forget never never land and we grow up and we don't do play anymore or, or is it a, is it a human thing or is it just you know for very young children 
No, no, play, play, play is part of our character. P play is part of who we are. And um, I mean, I've, I've got uh, one of my students just starting their dissertation and they're looking at um, um, older people's perceptions of play. Okay. And um, actually on, on Twitter, I saw this lovely um, short video and uh, it was taken in um, various uh, residential care homes. And you can just see the play that's going on. You can see the playfulness. We don't stop. What happens is society, unfortunately, because we have to go to work, um, you know, otherwise, if, if, you know, if we had the time and the space, you know, but our play, I would say the quality of it will differ. So how, um, for example, how four and five-year-olds engage in rough and tumble play is qualitatively different than when teenagers do it right. because the reason and the rationale why four and five-year-olds do it is often just because they're playing with their peers um, whereas when you get to the teenagers um, there's some research that's being done on it is that sometimes it's actually being used as a way of showing your prowess your strength and actually trying to attract the opposite sex because you know the hormones and everything else are kicking in so play always happens it's always i mean i i, I can imagine everybody in the staff room will sit there and think actually i know who the playful person in that staff room is i know the one that might do the the, the, the little jokes or pranks or, or can come out with the really funny comments you know, we, 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 we have the relatives that do that. And actually, the interesting thing I find is that children pick up on that. Children tend to really migrate to those playful people and those playful adults. So, yeah, it's, I think it's a quality that we have. We don't lose. It's whether we have that relaxed feel to be able to express it. OK, right. I, 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 I think I have a good grasp now. Right. And we have we, we I think I am ready to dive into kind of the intricacies of the play cycle now. But, but just before we do, I want to give a bit of a shout out to John Cat um, Educational, who help us out with these shows. And we're just going to hear a little bit from them uh, about the wonderful kind of books and offers they have on at the moment. So we'll just hear a little bit from this them. show is brought to you in partnership with John Cat Educational, a leading publisher of books, directories, educational guides and magazines specifically aimed at forward-thinking schools in the UK and beyond. Have you checked out their latest releases? Don't miss out! Visit johncatbookshop.com to explore their full range of titles and advance your own professional development today. Happy reading! Live from Swansea, this is The Twilight Show with Nathan Ginn on Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live at ttradio.org or to join in the conversation, download the Podbean app and search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag TT Radio. Tune in, talk it out with Teachers Talk Radio. Or at our pal, Kroisui Abitawi. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Swansea. Welcome to the Twilight Show. Meet Nathan Ginn here on Teach Talk Radio. We're joined by Dr. P. King uh, from Swansea University. We're talking about the play cycle. We're just going to dive real deep into it in a second. I should say, wonderful John Cat there. Uh, great to have them supporting us. Uh, 
but absolutely terrible for my bank balance because I've I've spent an absolute fortune uh, and probably could uh, a room in my house after after the amount of books that I've ended up with from them. So great to hear from them. Now, uh, welcome back, uh, Pete. Hi. Oh, still with us. You panicked yeah. me for a second there. I have always have these moments of kind of, you know, uh, pa- uh, sort of jarring panic as 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 we come back from any break uh, that that maybe someone has has just left off, but it's still with us. And and you've explained you've you've fielded some of my potentially silly questions, I guess, or, or maybe they're common questions, but certainly some of those starters um, to get us going. And now what I wanted to really do, because I found this incredibly interesting, I know I saw sort of the video animation that was put together um, of the play cycle, and I, I was looking at it. And as I was watching, I was recognizing either things that, you know, maybe this ties into the, you know, you sort of saying about adults as well, some of the things that I either use with my, my my young children that I've got, but also I work with teenagers now. And that kind of interpersonal thing that, that we do when we're first meeting them to get to know them, to find boundaries. There were parts of this that I found, you know, really interesting and recognized about things that I do. But it's kind of to start off then, for uh, people who maybe haven't seen that animation, haven't maybe read any of the work, can you talk us through the kind of stages of the play cycle? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Right. So as I sort of mentioned uh, earlier, the, 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 the concept of the play cycles within this um, paper called the Colorado paper. And um, the stages that they, um, Gordon and Perry, uh, proposed, um, they actually had them, um, the first stage they called the Metalude, then the play cue, the play return, the play frame, loop and flow, and annihilation. Um, and what I, I've sort of always start with the starting point with um, how both Perry and Gordon um, positioned these, what I call the six elements of the, of the play cycle. Because um, in 2018, so 20 years um, when the, the, the Colorado paper was first presented, um, I was with chatting to my, uh, I say my research colleague, Dr. Newstead. Shell is based in, in England. We rarely meet face to face, but that's the, the, the wonders of uh, the, the internet. Mm. And I said to Shelley, I said, um, we got the play cycle. It underpins um, professional playwork practice. Playworkers under their national occupational standards have these eight playwork principles, and you can see the play cycle and the process of play is integral. In, in fact, they, they say the adult role is to support the process of play within the playwork principles. And I said to Shelley, I said, well, I've been doing a bit of reading where aspects of the play cycle the diff you know the the, the play cue the play return play. i've been looking around and 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 in the published text like the, the textbooks and things like this i said there seems to be a variation how you, a, a little bit like if you um whisper in one person's ear by the time it gets to the 20th person what's been said might have a different meaning a different interpretation or just completely different as it is and i think for me, that I felt that's what the play cycle um, was happening. 
And the thing with the play cycle is that if you've got it within the national occupational standards and the playwork principles to support professional practice, you've got to have consistency. So how are people interpreting the play cycle from the theory, original theory in 98 to 2018? So Shelley and I did um, two studies. We did a study with play workers and we did a study with childcare workers. And part of the study, we said, right, here are the six elements of the play cycle. So we still use the Metalude um, loop and flow, EQ, play return, play frame, annihilation. And we said, look, without looking at anything, was, these were online surveys, we said, without looking at anything, write down what you think these meant. And by doing also a literature search, I could see how the variation for each of these elements are. So the, the nub of it is that we redefined um, the definitions of those six elements. Um, nobody understood what metalude meant. And it, it's one of these, because it's the metalude, meta, higher, lewd, ludic meaning play, you can't observe it. It's something that's internal. And people didn't understand that. They didn't understand what the word meant and everything. And so it's like, well, there's no point using words if there's no meaning that people can't have, particularly if they're trying to put something into practice. So we replaced metalude with the word pre-cue because the idea that most people had with the metalude, well, it was, was it's an idea or thought to play. So we simplified it. Everyone understood what a play cue is. So a play cue is a signal to play. So it can be verbal or non-verbal. So for example, oi, knife, throw the ball over here, cue to play. Yeah. Or you could be working with some children at a desk and you suddenly realize that there's someone over your shoulder. And we've all been in that position. We're thinking they want to join in, but they're not saying anything, but they're giving a non-verbal cue that they want to. Mm. So Play cues can be verbal or non-verbal, but they're a signal to play. And the difference between the pre-cue and the play cue is the pre-cue is internal, so we can't see it. The play cue goes from the internal world to the external world. So we see the play cue. Yeah. Now, can I ask about the, the kind of pre-cue there, the metalude, that part? Um, so does it does it come from somewhere and, and do we want to promote it in some way? You know, I'm thinking about maybe you know, when I've been into early years classrooms, when I've seen sort of invitations to play laid out and things, is 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 that how we get it to happen? Right. Yeah. Okay. So, what for one would say is, don't use metalude. Right. Just stick with pre-cue pre because I think I think yeah. people understand it. Now, the the pre-cue could be a conscious or unconscious idea or thought to play. Now. Nothing in this world is original, Nathan, okay? And I was delivering an um, online presentation about the play cycle. It was uh, somebody in Australia. If you think the, the, the microphone is bad here, you from my house to Australia. Yeah. Um, um, and the, um, it was recorded and somebody sent the link out on this play network and mentioned the chat before um gordon burkhart the animal uh, behaviorist yeah um he saw it and he responded to it and the person sent me the email 
And basically, what he said was that he met with Gordon at a conference. And I know the conference it was at because I was there because I bought Gordon's book, uh, Gordon Burkhardt's book, and he signed it. And what he said in, in this email, and I read it, he said that the play cycle is an interesting concept. However, um, there is a similar version called the functional cycle that was in um, the early 1900s by a German called Van Oxel. And I thought, oh, blimey, okay, I'm going to have to look at this. And what it was, was it, it, it's, it's, it is a cycle, but it's done in reverse. And basically, what Van Oxel was saying was that animals will get from the environment what they want. There's got to be an interaction between what the environment offers and what the animal uh, needs. So, for example, if you've got a grass stalk or grass, a sheep will want that grass different to an insect. It's getting different things from it. And what Van Oxel called that was a perceptual cue. So we as animals perceive things from the environment. And when I was reading this and thinking, I'm thinking, right, okay, so Van Oxel's looking at the environment first, that there's something that we perceive, and he's called it a perceptual cue. And I'm thinking that is what CAD stimulates the pre-cue. Something from the external environment can make us consciously or unconsciously think, I want to play. And we've got this um, lovely theory called the theory of loose parts. Early years practice, schools, you say the word loose parts, and I'd say eight times out of ten people say, oh, yeah, I know what loose parts are. Um, it's a lovely concept, but the basics with it is that the more things you've got in the environment, the more chance you've got children to play with and manipulate. So a loose part can be a bit like when um, I talked about the open access project, where basically our van was full of loose parts. Yeah. So you get it out and, and children can manipulate it. Junk modeling, classic example. Good yeah. thing with junk modeling is that, you know, you don't worry about the boxes if they get smashed or torn or ripped. But actually for the child, what they're getting out of it, sometimes the process of play is much more than an outcome. You know, this is why when, you know, I, when I used to pick my children up from play group, yeah, it was great what they made. But a lot of the time I felt that they were making it for the adult satisfaction of when you pick your children up, oh, look what they've made, where yeah. I was more interested in the process. Yeah. And so uh, loose parts, uh, this is why having a very well-resourced play space, whether it's in your classroom, preschool, in the playgrounds, um, it can stimulate the idea, the pre-cue to play. And that's where the environment has this, offers a perceptual cue because we perceive it. And then we think about it, pre-cue, it's internal, and then it might issue a cue out to play. So does that sort of answer your question? Yeah, I think so. I think, you know, uh, kind of this this idea, because I'm thinking, you know, particularly from schools, particularly in those earlier settings or that where that pressure is, and maybe this is putting too much pressure on of, of you know, myself, of what, what I think, um, you know, like getting something out or getting play to happen. Um, so we can we can kind of set the stage 
then and, and I can have lots of options but as far as sort of implanting that kind of play or pre- prescribing it that that's not what we're talking about then what I would say is it's it's about how you resource the environment okay because go back to the open access project we decided um, we would offer um, the team at lunchtime to schools um, and many schools particularly you know very much focused on, on, on primary schools and so if you think about often the lunchtime there's not a lot of resources in the playground but that's the time that children have that space to play that's their time away from the the, the, the classroom they can interact with their peers but often things aren't able to happen because schools are very much tight for resources and the last thing often that happens is having things during the break times so we would go in and what happened was that the whole playground you could just see play just happening in, in little sections so you've got all these different play cycles all these different groups of children playing and one of the things that we actually had feedback particularly from the head teachers and that was saying actually when you come in and you resource the environment and children engaged in play we're having a lot is- less issues about behavior and boredom's easy to set in and also the constraints that you have but you know going back to like the adventure playground movement the whole idea of the adventure playground was you know it was junk modeling um, on the large scale building dens hammer and nails and things like this now i'm not saying you know we introduce hammer and nails into schools don't go but it's the concept of the more the play space is resourced the more potential ideas and thoughts to play and we see that as a play cue and if we see a play cue we pick it up and we give what we call a return and it's the having that play cue and that play return that actually forms the play cycle. And it's one of these things, Nathan, that people will say, yeah, but we've been doing this for years. And it's like, yes, but what we're doing now is we're giving the theory to support what and why you're doing and how you're supporting play. And particularly if, you know, there's some, sometimes there's a notion that, you know, adults who work with children, if they're not playing with the children, they're not doing their job. Well, actually, so providing they're doing an observational you know the less the adult does in relation to play i think the better the job that they do because they're allowing children to take the control and the autonomy of the play and so with that as well is that you can then observe more children and see more play cycles happening because the thing with it is that in it, you know you could have 20 children and you could have potentially 20 different play cycles if they're playing on their own but play is a social thing. So you tend to have more play as a group, but you could have four, five, six play cycles going on at the same time. The skill of the adult is to ensure to keep these play cycles intact. And that's where the play frame comes in. Because often play has a boundary and it could be a physical boundary or it could be a non-physical boundary. A bit like a word game, you can't, you know, children can play on a word game, but there's no physical boundary with it or that you know your your children could make a den under the table so that table is the play frame under the table because it's got a distinct um area 
And the key thing is that the play frame can help keep the play cycle intact. When children so, play, sorry, go on. Yeah, so I'm just imagining there in my head, I'm picturing, you know, because it, you mentioned it at the table and it, you know, it spun. That's what my boys will do. You know, I've got young boys. They'll do that. They'll be playing the table, sheets over the table, whatever, yep. you know, they, they've decided to do. Inside that, there is play happening. And that is that what, what you're saying is the, the play frame. Yeah. The, the play frame will be, come the, at, be the boundary with and yeah. the play cycles within that boundary. So if they've put a, a sheet over the table, yeah. that rectangular area that encompasses the table within that is the play cycle of what they're doing under the table yes and then so i would recognize then from observing them do that when they step out from under there the, the the kind of play change is always stopped at that you know at that point it is is somehow different to me and i recognize that sort of in my own children that would be then sort of the end of the play cycle no no because the the idea with the play cycle is that Play cues don't stop. Right. So you, you're continually having play cues and return. Um, there's one aspect with when does a play cycle start and when does a play cycle stop? And part of that is always going to be individual interpretation. And um, I've, I've done um, studies with um, students using video and with children, uh, with colleagues observing children in sort of real time. And what we can definitely say is, yes, we can see the play cycles, we can see the returns. There is always going to be a little bit of difference from one person to another where they feel a play cycle stops and the play cycle finishes. That's fine. But what happens within um, an established play cycle is that you're still going to get play cues and play returns. And it's having those continual play cues and play that we then get into uh, another element of the play cycle called flow. It originally, um, it was called loop and flow. People understood flow, but they didn't understand the word loop. Um, and flow, flow is a concept that was um, introduced by uh, this chap called Mikhail uh, Csikszentmihalyi. And basically, it's Flow is that thing when you're engaged in an activity and you suddenly lose all notion of time, space, the real world. And we can't see flow, we can only interpret because it's an internal thing again. But yeah, I, I, I remember um, I was with my team this one day. We went to this school in Pembrokeshire and they only had 26, 28 children in the school. So the classroom had the whole age range. Yeah. yeah. And when we arrived, we got all the equipment out. One of the most popular equipment we had when we used to take to the park is we had this um, two or three plastic barrels that children could get into and roll down the, an, an incline. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And so we, we had them and we got everything else out. And I, I could always remember this because um, the, the teaching staff came out and they lined all the 28 children in a row. And they hadn't, they hadn't a clue, and a Scooby-Doo, why we were there. So we just sort of explained who we were and everything else. And then we said, here you go, go and play. And they looked at us. They looked at the teachers and the teachers just gave that nod, you know, that nod mm. of, yes, you can play. 
And it was really interesting because in a split second, they went from lining up. You can see the cues that they were giving to the, the equipment. Because the thing with a play return is that it can be a return, a verbal, non-verbal from um, an adult, or actually the return can be a non-human piece of equipment because children play on their own. So if they play on their own, they're not going to get a return from an adult, but it might be a resource or something. So again, the importance of having a resourced environment. They got into what, whoever they were going to play with. They got what equipment they wanted. And um, suddenly, from lining up as a row of 28 to the most busy noise and everything else, however, you could see they were in flow. They suddenly forgot that they were in school because they had all these equipment. And, and uh, what I would say was the teaching staff were wonderful because um, they let the children go in the barrels because there was a slight incline on, on the playground. So it was safe enough. So play cycles will only finish when whoever's in it, it has no more meaning to them. Hmm. So flow is an important aspect. And th this is why I think. Um, when children play, and I always try and uh, I always try to do this with my children, when they're in a play cycle and they're in flow, the last thing you want to do is suddenly say, right, your play's stopping. Right. Okay. And um, I always remember taking one of my children, I had to go to the doctor. You know, the doctors used to have a little box of toys in, in their surgery when, you know, mm -hmm. so they talk to the adults. And, um, one of my children was playing with something. And then of course, cause you're in the doctors and you know, there's other patients. I just thought, all oh, right, I've got to go. And I picked them up and I remember absolutely screaming the room down. And when I look back and reflect on it, it was because I broke their play cycle. They, they were deep in a play and I suddenly stopped it. And I always think with, with um, children, particularly primary school children and younger, is that um, when they're in break time, they got that dreaded bell. But suddenly they're in play and they've got to be out of play. And I always wonder, would it be useful to actually have a bit, bit sort of Pavlov um, sort of um, theory here, but actually have a sort of bell to first say, right, the play's got to stop now and then have the bell say, right, we're, break time's over. So it gives children the time to actually process that they're going to have to come out of their play cycle. Okay. Now, I want to ask you another thing, though, because, you know, you were talking about those barrels there and you said that stopping the play is the worst thing you can do. But I think potentially and this maybe this is my background, maybe this is my training or just the control within me. You know, I was thinking of those barrels and I was thinking back, you know, when I was teaching outdoor, I had those lovely children lined up and in my head. I, uh, that could have gone very differently without someone like yourself there, where we might have, as as teachers, have brought them over to the barrel, showed them how to get in the barrel, told them that they had to roll it to a certain distance and then get out the barrel, and we might have, and 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 so it might have looked a bit like the same thing, but it wouldn't have been the same thing. So with the adults, then is interfering the right word? Can we can we get in the way of the play happening? Right. If we if we go to back to uh, my one of my children ringing me. Um, if we go back to the the, the original paper, um, and the, the whole idea is that the adult supports okay. um, 
the play process. And we can do it in uh, one of four ways. One they term as uh, play maintenance, and we're basically just doing an observer role. So we're just ensuring that the play cycles are intact. The second one um, they termed as simple involvement. So we act as a resource. So the video shows that the child has got a box on their head. The adult has a pen. They're acting as a resource, giving the pen so another child can draw a face on the box. Right. Um, the third one is medial intervention, where a child might potentially cue in an adult to play. So, for example, I could be in the playground uh, a child comes up to me with two tennis rackets and the ball, gives me a racket. It's a clear cue they want me to play and I'm more active in the play cycle. Mm. And then um, you can have more um, complex intervention, particularly things like uh, if you're in, in some kind of role play or managed play with, with children where you're playing a character. So as long as you're the adult supporting that process, you can be active in the play cycle. The key thing is that you don't take it over. And right. I always say that play cycles are quite fragile and there's always going to be a power thing. And also, if you're using play and a play cycle for a particular, as we, we came in with, objective, attainment and everything else, um, it's not so much interference. The, 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 the term that Sturrock and else uh, used and, and it's still very much used today is adulteration right. so we have the risk alterating a play cycle for an adult objective and agenda as opposed to supporting it to enable children to be right. able to have that control and autonomy now one of the things i wanted to ask about that sort of leading on from that is you know and, and this is, might be sort of more opinion than there i don't know if there's sort of evidence behind this but certainly in my experience, more recently, and, and, and particularly this was in England, at break times and play times, there was an expectation that somebody, whether it be an external advisor or one of the bodies that inspectors, you know, coming in, wanted to see children doing things at, at break time. And so there was this kind of push of the adults, the, the playtime supervisors, whatever they were being called, um, would be leading or having organised activities. And I asked on Twitter, you know, just a small poll it was, um, but... It was 45% of people who came back said that their school was running like organised adult-led activities at break time. And, and, and do you think that that maybe is getting, is, does that get in the way of the play cycle then based off what you just said? Um, the bottom line is always going to be, does the child perceive it to be play or not? Right. Children actually having something that has a structure organized they're very happy with that hmm. so yes it, it it could be very much a positive play cycle um if you think about particular um children um who have been diagnosed with autism they have a very different type of play um, you know, an atypical different play to more typically what we term typically developed children and autistic children's play can be very structured, repetitive. Um, and so actually having a bit of structure and order is good. Um, children with potentially um, having um, a disability where they have to rely on the adult to provide organisation and, and structure. So, yes, it has a place. 
what I think you're referring to here is where children, if they don't take part in it, then they can't, there's nothing else that they can do. Aspect, yes, I wouldn't use the word interfering. I would say you're adulterating their playtime, their break time, and mm. actually, you're going to potentially have more resentment for children having to do something that they don't want to do. Particularly that if they're in a classroom all day, and even if it's sort of play-based learning, it still has that sort of adult agenda. That's their education. Suddenly, when they have the break time, that's their space, and actually, you you get probably more from them if you know it goes back down to this thing about a relaxed field can potentially trying to organize the play too much put more stress on as opposed to letting children have that control fantastic and as you know as throughout the whole of this you're segueing me perfectly to next questions now what we are going to do and i say if you're listening in stick around for the news because when we come back um i, I wanted to ask you about the the importance of play sort of the, the the benefits why it's important why why people should understand it um and and so you're happy to stick around pete <laughs> yeah no worries Fantastic. What I'll do is I'll, I'll mute you quickly just while we go to the news. And uh, if you're listening in, don't forget, you can text in uh, in the Podbean app or you can uh, tweet us at TT Radio Official to join the conversation. Because when we come back, we are going to be asking about the importance of play and, and whether you think it's important in your role at school. We'll see you on the other side. This show is brought to you in partnership with John Cat Educational, a leading publisher of books, directories, educational guides, specifically aimed at forward-thinking schools in the UK and beyond. Have you checked out their latest releases? Don't miss out. Visit johncatbookshop.com to explore their full range of titles and advance your own professional development today. Happy reading. This is Teacher Talk Radio. And this is Teachers Talk Radio News. Education Secretary Gillian Keegan has addressed school leaders at the Church of England National Education Conference. In a speech that recognised the achievements of Church of England schools and of teachers and leaders in schools across the country, she defined education as something that lets you do things you couldn't beforehand. She also reflected on her own experiences of being educated in a faith school, although it was a different denomination, Catholic. She spoke about the importance of a faith which is still a core part of who I am and recognised the work of faith schools, particularly Anglican schools, and the role they play in educating young people. She described the Church of England as one of my department's most valued partners, as the largest provider of academy trusts. Ms Keegan went on to say that her department would protect the schools so that when they became academies, they retained the statutory freedoms and protections that apply to church schools. She also used the speech to comment on standards and said, I agree with the Prime Minister on maths to 18 and praised a former teacher of hers, Mr Ashcroft, who helped her realise my one opportunity. The speech was not without reference to planned industrial action by teachers in the National Education Union when she commented that for teachers to have an impact, they need to be in school and stated that we will be funding schools in real terms at the highest level in history. The speech closed with a statement that her door is always open, ask that you now work with me to keep as many children in schools as possible during the disruptive strike action. 
Ms Keegan ended with a focus on collaboration to make sure our education system flourishes for all children. Half of state schools in England and Wales will close on Wednesday as a result of the planned industrial action, according to reports in many media outlets. The action by NEU coincides with that being taken by civil servants, university staff and train drivers. While schools may close, many will remain open to pupils identified as vulnerable or at risk, as well as some schools offering places to the children of critical workers. The latest data from the Higher Education Statistics Agency shows that the number of EU students choosing to study in the UK has dropped by half since the UK left the EU. Enrolments by EU nationals dropped by 53%, from around 64,000 to 31,000 between 2020 and 2022. Whilst the number of non-EU nationals did increase at the same time period, the data shows that the UK universities still faced significant shortfalls. The exit from the EU and the changing international fee policy saw EU student fees rise from around £9,000 to as high as 38,000. The decline has been particularly sharp in student numbers from Italy, Germany and France. Similar falls have been seen in Scotland with many mourning the demise of the EU's Erasmus scheme, as well as the loss of diversity brought to courses by students from the EU. Universities UK said the changes in numbers had dented the finances of some universities and impoverished campus life. The HuffPost featured an article focusing on new data which shows that 87% of teenagers want better and more inclusive sex education. The survey by student discount app Student Beans found that 39% did not feel represented in the sex education they received. 27% of girls surveyed admitted they did not feel comfortable setting and communicating boundaries with a partner, compared to 23% of male respondents. 89% of all respondents said they did not see LGBTQIA themes in the teaching. With Generation Z having the highest percentage of non-straight people, almost double that of millennials, perhaps time for another review. Finally, Schools Week focuses on Ofsted's announcement on how it will conduct thematic reviews of alternative provisions. Visits will take place in the spring and summer terms, with a national report out in the autumn. The visits will not result in judgments and the report will not identify local areas specifically, although they will be listed separately. There will be a focus on how AP supports children to stay in mainstream and full details are available on the Schools Week website. This has been your Teachers Talk Radio News with Joe Fox. This is Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. Hello, this week I'm going to talk about GDPR, an acronym that has bounded around and caused quite a stir when it was first introduced back in 2018. GDPR stands for General Data Protection Regulation and it's governed by the ICO, which is the Information Controller's Office, an independent body set up by the government to uphold information rights. Ah, thanks Steve, that's crystal clear now, I hear you say. What does it mean? 
to the general classroom teacher. Well, your school will have a policy, which you will have signed somewhere to say you've read it. If you haven't, it might be worth taking a look. In it, there'll be an outline of measures to protect data and usually a process of investigation in the event of a data breach. A data breach in a school is when personal data is compromised and a person can be identified, for example, first name and last name. In a school, Breaches can be as serious as the introduction of ransomware where data is locked by a cyber attack or as simple as the wrong letter being sent to the wrong carers. Now the question is how do we protect ourselves? First, if you're still wandering around USB pen hanging off your lanyard, make sure it's encrypted. There is lots of free encryption software around. If you can, migrate your data into the school's cloud. This puts the onus back on the school to keep the data safe. It's also backed up regularly. I know what you'll say next. If I'm in the cloud and the internet goes down, I can't get my planning. Yes, you're correct, but your school laptop will be encrypted. So you current files locally to enable working offline. If you have a machine with a small memory like a Chromebook, sync what you need and leave the rest in the cloud. With the top ads on a search for school data breach, all reading claim around £10,000 today. Obviously, no win, no fee. Do you want to cost your school that much money? I'll leave you with this. If you take a digital register and display it while you take it, could it be classed as a data breach? As always, I'd love to hear what you want to know about tech. Let us know at TT Radio Official. I'm Steve Woods, and that was Two Minute Tech. Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. Live from Swansea, this is The Twilight Show with Nathan Ginn on Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live at ttradio.org or to join in the conversation, download the Podbean app and search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag TT Radio. Tune in, talk it out with Teachers Talk Radio. Hello and welcome to Swansea and the Twilight Show with me, Nathan Ginn here on Teachers Talk Radio. Now tonight we're joined by Dr. Pete King from Swansea University. We're talking about the play cycle and um, we're talking, are we getting in the way of play? What is play? We've asked, you know, do other uh, things do it? Like I was going to say animals there, but we even talked about fish. Um, and what are the main stages of the play cycle we've talked about as well. Um, so if you're joining us live, don't forget, you can find uh, this show and all of our other ones back on uh, ttradio.org slash listen back or on Spotify on Amazon. Uh, so if you missed the start of the show, don't worry, you can catch that up later if you can, but stick with us now because what we are going to be talking about, and you can join the conversation live in the chat if you're listening in Podbean as well. But what I'm going to ask you, um, Pete, is is about sort of, so why is play important and and what are the what happens if we don't allow the the sort of play cycle to develop naturally and uh, what yeah that's my question I, I tailed off there what why is the play important to our young people um i think you know going back to the original play theorists the armchair philosophers um through to when um children became more subjects um in research and 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 realizing that that you know play is important you've got piaget theory um the the role play can have um he classified play in as um pretend symbolic games with rules and you've got vygotsky and his concept of the zone of proximal development where the uh, more supportive adult or could be a peer can take the child from their um, 
actual level of development to potential. Play has always been central to these concepts. And, you know, going back to this thing about, you know, you can look at play in different contexts, consider it in different contexts, but there is developmental and therapeutic potential in play. Um, hence, that's why um, I've been involved um, at Swansea and, 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 you know, part of the course we do is looking at that developmental and therapeutic potential. The other thing to, to always bear in mind as well is that um, Cambridge University um, have been sponsored by Lego to look at the developmental and learning potential of play. So if Lego are putting that amount of money in to one of the most leading um, universities, then you know that play is important in children's lives. I think the slight, again, I think we sort of tapped upon it at, at the beginning, but what we've got to be careful about when we interpret the potential of play is that we can't categorically say there's a cause and effect. Right because there are too many variables. Basically to say play is important in cognitive development or physical development, social development, emotional development, you know, these domains that, that, that play have been looked into. You have to try and negate all these other variables that could contribute to it, and you can't do that. So all we can really say is that there is a strong relationship that play has to these areas of development. But they and do. I, I don't think we can argue that they don't because it's difficult to, to disprove that, that, that they aren't involved in. But play, I always think, and this is where I think the play cycle is important in the process of play is that it enables these areas of development to be directed by the child as opposed to um, being directed by the adult. And the um, late, I think it was in, in the 1980s in, that, in, in Romania, where you had a lot of children who um, were orphaned and they were just literally placed in hospitals. Mm. And their whole life was pretty much 24 hours a day um, tied to the cot. Right. So they had no interaction with the environment. Um, there's so many children in these hospitals that the adult literally could not give any time. So there was no social interaction or everything else. And what they were able to do, thank goodness they're not in existence anymore. But what they were able to show because of MS that for the same age child who was in an orphanage with no stimulation compared to a child who had that stimulation being able to play, the MRI scan of their brain showed two very different brains. And this goes back down to, well, um, play can stimulate different aspects of your brain to make these synapses. Um, the importance of outdoor play, because children do need to have that physical. Um, rough and tumble play, I think is, is integral but it's one of those that's just banned and it's banned because it's perceived as play fighting and fighting. Well, it is play fighting, but 
the important thing with um, rough and tumble play, and this goes back um, to, um, I can't think of the person, he did an observation of primates in a zoo in the 1950s. Mm. And basically what he noticed was that primates had two types of face. One face was sheer aggression and you could sense that it was a real fight. The other he turned as the play face. Mm. And there were certain characteristics of the face that actually was sending that signal, sending that cue to say, I'm going to fight, but it's not a real fight. So primates do that. That's what rough and tumble play can do. And often nice. with rough, rough and tumble play is that the more able child sometimes lets the less able child win. So you're actually getting a lot of social and emotional development going on just in that type of play. But it's often play that is stopped. Now, there's two things I want to ask kind of off the back of that, because I find that that kind of, that you know, you've mentioned a few times this kind of observational, the subtlety of it. And that must mean, are you know, is there something within, you know, say, you know, doing some work, developing play works and stuff like that, is there something within that then that you have to be, you know, maybe is attunement the right word, that, that kind of awareness of seeing body language and subtle clues a bit more is, is, is that something that's important, something that you can train? Do you know, I, can you train? I, I, you can make people aware of it, but mm. I, mean, I think it goes back down to this playful disposition. Mm. And when I look at my colleagues in the playwork field, I can see certain characteristics that sort of define them. Mm. Um, and I think it's the same I've seen in working in playgroups, um, working in an after-school club, is that we've been doing this all the time. I, 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 we're not introducing anything new. All we're doing is providing a theoretical structure on something that I think we naturally do when we work with children, and particularly when we can support play. And the other question that I'd ask, and this, you know, maybe this is a reflection of the way that certain curriculums, and I will say that certainly my experience with the curriculum in England sort of are, is pushing more. And, I, you know, I tend that including sort of the, the early years framework as well that, that exists there or how people interpreted the early years framework and uh, made schools uh, kind of changed its, its, its meaning um, somewhat. But does this... Is there a difficulty then in particular those early years of primary where um, early years practice hits hits um, school for one of a better word and I'm doing inverted commas around that about because it sounds like this is really hard then and I'm thinking when I was a school leader that I need you know and this sounds terrible but this is the, the curriculum to some extent children to jump through certain hoops and play isn't going to reliably do that for me. Does that make sense? It, it does. And I think what, what you're highlighting here, Nathan, is, is um, work that was done by Elizabeth Wood. Um, I think she was at Leeds. And basically, you've, you've got policies and procedures. And policies and procedures are written by people who may not be face-to-face -face practitioners anymore. Hmm. But you're actually asking those who do the face-to-face -face work to implement something that maybe 
they don't particularly believe in, don't particularly agree with. But at the end of the day, if you're paid to work in an environment, that's what you're paid to do. Mm -hmm. And that's, again, why I think, you know, I, I would never criticise teachers' use of play because sometimes the constraints are out of the teacher, a bit like the play being taken out of the, the child's control, the actual way of setting up the play environment is taken out of the teacher's control. And okay. I totally get that, you know. Um, what I would say is that there is this concept called play-based learning. Right. And a study that was done, um, I think it was in America, but it was focusing on the concept play-based learning, was that they um, did some um, interviews and things with um, early years practitioners. And there was sort of three main sort of headings themes one was child-led which was at one end of the continuum hmm. then you had adult-led which is at the other end of the continuum and in the middle you got collaborative right and the collaborative is where you've actually got the child and the adult playing together but not one controlling the other hmm. um I, I think it was Siraj Blatchford who um, came up with the term sustained shared thinking. Right. And so I can see in relation to the play cycle that child led, that's where the adult is having that play maintenance role, being an observer, hmm. having that simple involvement, just acting as a resource. Collaborative that's where the adult become more of a play partner hmm. and being a play partner you're trying to negate the power aspect the power that the adult can have over the child so that you're allowing the child to share their ideas but then the adult sharing that but not worrying if the adult ideas are being taken up or not right and that's where i think the play cycle can fit in to play-based learning is because you could still support the process of play. It's when you get to the adult-led, the other end of the continuum, that's where play is often, um, it's actually work disguised as play. That was um, a, a, a phrase termed by um, Burgeon in America. And I think it's a really good phrase because a worksheet is a worksheet. And as much as you try and disguise it as play, it's still a worksheet. Yeah. Um, and I, you know, I wanted, because we were rapidly kind of approaching the end of the show here, I wanted to think just, you know, and this is maybe like a magic wish for you that if you, you know, we've had a chance to really discuss and, and it has been truly interesting for me just to, you know, and thank you for putting up with some, some of my probably, uh, you know, infantile questions at the beginning about not understanding, you know, what is play, who plays, you know, all of those things, because it is something. And I think you said at the start that, you know, it, it seems simple until, you know, you kind of start unpicking it. And then it turns out that actually, you know, there's a lot to unpack, a lot to unpick, a lot to understand. But if you could sort of, you know, click your fingers, as it were, and and um, people, you know, whether it, I guess, be, you know, parents or, or teachers or or people working with young people could could sort of think about play in a different way or understand this about play, what, what would it be that you wanted them to, to take away? Generally, um, I would say... Look at what they do in Scandinavia. They don't worry about sort of the real formal education to children of seven. 
So just children play until they're seven. Simple as that. Well, fantastic. Uh, you know, and uh, it's, as I say, you know, a, 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 um, a wonderful conversation. That we, you know, as I say, I found it really interesting and really uh, things to really sort of think and think about. And I'm sure that there will be bits that I come back to again and again. Now, if there are people who sort of are catching this at the end or still have questions that they didn't manage to get in live to us, is there somewhere they can reach out and sort of ask those questions? Yeah, I mean, if I'm allowed to give my uh, work email address, people can always email me. Yeah, by all means. Yeah, it's um, p.f.king at swansea.ac.uk. Um, I'm also on Twitter as Dr. Pete King. Um, that's another way that uh, people can access me. But yeah, I mean, anybody who has any questions or, or anything, you know, relating to play, more than happy to uh, try and uh, respond. Well, the bit that I'm really interested in, you know, we do not have time, unfortunately, deep into this. But the bit, you know, when I said that, I, you know, is something that I recognised about this, about how I build relationships with young people. And is there a, is that something that, that, that comes from play? Is, there, is, is, am I on the right tracks there that I'm, you know, sort of by being playful, maybe as you, as you described earlier, or elements of this play cycle, you know, putting out uh, play cues to the young people that I'm trying to engage with. Is that, is that sort of a human communication thing to build yes. relationships? Yeah, yeah, yeah. One of our ex-students, um, while they were studying, um, they, they have a, a, a placement element. Um, they were working for um, a defending team. Okay. So, you, you know, you've got very much adults, but you've got actual or young, young people, I should say, who, you know, obviously going through um, certain aspects of their lives. But actually, they were using play in their interaction. So even though they were doing, you know, outward activities and things like this, actually, it was focusing on the process, the playfulness and everything else. Yes, it is. Because the thing is, is that if you send a cue out, it doesn't mean you're going to get a return. Mm. And the only way you're going to know if you're going to get a return is by sending that cue. Turning it the other way around, sometimes a child might send a cue that actually gets interpreted as inappropriate behavior. And mm. um, one of the things we've done with, with this study, Shelley and I did other aspects with it. We asked people, has the play cycle changed elements of your practice? And a lot of people said that it made them think different in relation to behavior and in aspect inappropriate behavior and play behavior. And they suddenly thought that actually what the child was doing was issuing a cue. However, other children weren't interpreting it as a cue, but as the adult, if we interpret it a cue and try and form a play cycle, then it goes back to this thing I was saying to you about the head teachers when we used to resource the playground, they were dealing more with play behavior and less within a, what we term as an adult phrase, inappropriate behaviour. So, mm. yeah, it absolutely is about, I mean, the thing with play is that, you know, let children play on their own if they want to. Don't force children to play in social groups. However, most play is social. And so a play cue is a signal. It is a social signal because if you're sending it to someone else. I, I think... 
could have done another hour and a half on on the end of this and i find that you know that work really interesting about working with the younger uh, young offenders as well uh, particularly you know as as we started off when i was asking about whether it is just you know young children or whether it's all humans and all of those things it's been so great to talk to you uh, thank you so much for coming on tonight no problems i mean i'm happy to come back i can talk for play for days <laughs> well it is uh, yeah an, an absolutely intriguing topic for me and so uh, so interested into what we do and probably I would say touched on very little and I you know I'm someone who trained as a primary school teacher where actually the early years is is an element of that and and these things exist and it wasn't something that I had you know was overly familiar with at the time so I think you know from that perspective as well you know really really interesting can I, will can say I just can Nick, I quickly just throw one last thing in Nathan because it's really what you're saying is that um the Welsh government have just published um, the early years non-maintained curriculum. Mm. The play cycle's in there. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, there is a start. As you, you know, um, I, I, it would be interested. I, you know, I, I'd be interested in how that because I, you know, I haven't talked to early years professionals in a long time. I know when I was leaving England, um, they were just in the process of changing the early years framework, and that's kind of when I stepped off. I, you know, I maybe should look back into that as well and see what these differences are occurring because the differences in approaches between England and Wales really interested me as well. Now, we will say from here in Swansea, uh, it is Nostar, as we say in South Wales. Uh, beats and no star to you <laughs> as yourself thank you very much <laughs> and uh if you're still uh with us live don't forget tomorrow we've got two shows on we've got john gibbs and mark um, they're on at 11 a.m and 6 p.m uh, so check those out if you're listening back in itunes or in spotify or on ttradio.org slash listen back don't forget to check out our other shows and use that search function on the top of the website where you can type in play you'll come up with all of the shows that have been on TT Radio uh, over the past years and uh, years actually now. So um, you can find them there, over a thousand uh, to search back. So from here in South Wales, Nostar, good night, and we'll see you all next time. Listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.